0: Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You remember that story, it's recorded for us in Matthew 22, where the leaders of the power structures of Jesus' day, they're trying to entrap him, the, language specifically says that. They were trying to figure out a way to entrap him, and so they come and they have flattering words for Jesus. Basically, Jesus, you're the one that has all the answers. You're wise. We want to ask you a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You know the setup, right? If he says no, then he's in trouble with the Romans. If he says yes, then the people who hated Rome would be frustrated with that teaching. Remember what Jesus says? It's in Matthew 22. Show me a coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus has a whole lot to teach in that encounter, but he implicitly assumes something that we often miss. When you consider the image or the likeness that is stamped on a coin, Jesus said, that means that belongs to Caesar. But what is God's belongs to God. The parallel assertion would be, though it's unstated, you have a likeness and an image stamped on you. And you're not Caesars, thank God for that, but you belong to God. You belong to the one whose image is imprinted on you. Ownership is implied and communicated and grounded in creation and image and likeness. We are in the image and likeness of our creator. It was the great preacher R.C. Spruill who said, no one saw germs falling from the World Trade Center on 9-11. Those weren't meaningless organisms that were killed that day. We implicitly understand this these are not meaningless life specimens that are dying in ukraine today that are losing their lives weeks ago in israel and now in gaza these are people imprinted with god's image now that's a given for those of us that call ourselves believers in jesus but what is our basis of believing that we understand it comes from scripture but My suggestion to you is, everyone acknowledges that there's something unique about humanity, that there's something of fundamental value, that there is something that makes us different from the other creatures. I suppose even people who philosophically say they deny it, especially when it comes to the people they care about, they can't be consistent and live that out. There's something different about men and women, boys and girls. What's our basis for believing that? Where does that fundamental conviction in every heart, Bible believers, not Bible believers, every heart has this recognition that humanity bears some sense of dignity, some sense of meaning that goes beyond the creatures. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1, where we'll be this morning. And we find at the end of chapter 1 the details of what we know as day 6. This is the Overview of the days of creation in chapter one. That's what we find. Over the next few weeks, what the Bible does in what we call chapter two is, in a sense, it hits pause and backs up and gives details. It zooms in on that creative act of God, especially the creation of work in the garden, of the knowledge of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the creation of Eve. And so there are specific details. So here's what you have. You have chapter 1, the overview of the six days of creation, including the first several verses of chapter 2 next week. You have the overview. And then in chapter 2, you have the zoom in on details. And then in chapter 3, you have, in a sense, a day in the life. Of course, it's a milestone day in the life of Adam and Eve. But that's what you find in Genesis 1 through 3. And so this morning, we continue along in Genesis chapter 1. And we look at day six, and specifically, we're considering this morning the creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God. So, join with me as I follow, as I read. Please follow along in Genesis one, beginning in verse twenty-four. And I remind you today, this is God's word for us today. Genesis one, beginning in verse twenty-four. And God said, "Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds." livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. The New Living Translation, which is a somewhat colloquial translation, I love the way it says that. And it was so. The Living Translation says, and that's what happened. (laughs) And that's what happened. Verse 25. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. Here you have the creation of the apex of all of God's order. You have the highlight, the crown of creation, the creation of Adam and Eve. In the same structure, the day structure, it was the original six days of creation, but the language here is radically different. And what we know is that up till now, if you'll think about it, there has been no personal connection. There has been no intimacy. God has created. The creation has been meaningful. The creation has been glorious. The creation has been by his word. But you could still argue there's a sense in which there's a disconnect. God is not intimately connected with the waters, not intimately connected with the, the fish of the sea. He's not intimately connected even here with the birds of the air. But something changes when he begins to create Adam and Eve. And there's a good reason for that. God is transcendent. He is not part of creation. He is apart from his creation. He is the author of it all. But don't be confused about him being so enmeshed with creation that basically creation represents God or is God. No, he is apart from creation, but still he has a desire and intention. This is what we'll see before we're through today, a desire and intention to create in such a way that he is relationally connected with his creation. It's something different. And so literally, what we find here is he creates a godlike creation, a creature that is godlike. In a sense, he creates the king of the earth in our text this morning, and it is the crowning event. And I hope I can show you before I'm through, and there's so much to consider today, I feel inadequate to try to address all of it in any way. But what I want to show you today is there are implications for this incredible truth that we are, by virtue of our first parents, we are a -a one-of-a-kind creation, a -a one-of-a-kind creation. And God had in that time and has for us today and will have throughout eternity specific purposes for those that he has made in his own likeness and in his own image, so with that in view, let's look at it together. First of all, let me show you, just by way of comment, I won't spend any time on this, but let me show you God's astonishing creativity, his astonishing creativity in verses 24 and 25, and then also in verses 29 through 31. And we won't take time to reread these texts, but the language here is overwhelming. It is vast. It is diverse. It is, demonstrates the creative diversity that god builds into creation different kinds of living creatures at least three different groups and then he makes man and woman and he gives all that is good he gives plant he gives every specific kind of plant for their sustenance for their life we'll look at this more in the next couple of weeks but in verse 50 31 it says god saw that it was all very good this goodness, this astonishing creativity, this beauty that comes from our creator God, it is essentially, and I mean this in no way superficially or tritely, it is God showing off. It is God showing off. It is God saying, look at what I am able to do. Look at the vastness of creation. Look at the diversity of creation. Look at the beauty of creation. It is God putting his glory on display. God showing off. And one of the truths that flow out of this, for the first readers, undoubtedly, but for us as well, is it seems to me that Moses, the human author, and the Holy Spirit, the divine author, the authorship of Scripture, wants us to understand the folly of the fall. This is what God did. This is what God provided This is his astonishing beauty. This is his overwhelming goodness. Why did we throw it away? There's a good lesson there. There's a lesson for me. There's a lesson for you, really, every single day. The goodness of our God, and why would we rebel? Why would we trade it away for something meaningless, superficial, temporal, something that won't last? the folly of disobedience. If we think about the astonishing creativity of God, we'll be humbled by that. We also find here in this text, specifically in verse 26, God's mysterious consultation. Not just his creativity, but there's a consultation that happens in verse 26 and there's great mystery in it. But once again, I want you to note that this is brand new language in the chapter. Let there be, and there was, let the earth bring forth, and it was so. But now God uses different language. And God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man. Now, if you've done Bible studies, you've heard this before. What does he mean when, what does the text imply when it says, let us make man? Some say that it's the majestic or royal we. It's like when a king speaks and we are not pleased. Some have suggested that. Some think that God was speaking to the courts of heaven. We've implied over the last couple of weeks, we don't know when the spiritual beings were made or created, but some think that God was speaking to angels. Of course, the problem with that is we're not made in the image of angels. Some think that it's just a plural of deliberation. It's like instead of saying, what am I going to do? You're trying to think and you say, well, what are we going to do? And all of that perhaps might have been accepted if it were not for what we know of the rest of the Bible. In fact, if we look carefully what we have in Genesis 1, because in verse 1, you find God creating. In verse 2, you find the Spirit hovering And then later we know in Scripture, when God speaks, it is the Word of God, and we find that it is the Word that creates. And so you have God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Word, God the Son. And so there is a hint here, likely that, well, obviously the very first hint in Scripture, of the plurality of God. There is plurality within unity. So once again, at the very beginning of Scripture, there's rich mystery here. There's the transcendence of God that as finite beings we can't even grasp because God is one God and yet he is three in one. Now, skeptics are always wanting to know, why doesn't God make that clear? I mean, why is it obvious that there's a Trinity here? Why did it take literally centuries for believers to figure that out? And that's a great question. But I want to remind you that especially for the first readers, the children of Israel who were getting ready to enter the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, which was pervasive in its idolatry, and their roots were back in the land of Egypt, which was pervasive in its polytheism and idolatry. The emphasis in what we call the Old Testament is on the unity of God, the oneness of God, that God is one. Because in the cultures all around them, There was this confusion about there being many gods. And then as what we call progressive revelation, as God reveals more and more of himself, there are hints of the fact that even in this one God, there are three beings, almost impossible for us to talk about, to to frame our pronouns appropriately. When we're talking about God, is it plural? Well, no, it's not plural gods, be careful of that. That's an error, a heresy, but at the same time, We're not Unitarians. We don't believe that God is just an amorphous being. We believe that he exists eternally in three persons. You say, well, that's just such a mystery. I don't want to think about it. But you should think about it because it's even implied here in the very beginning of Scripture that there is a glorious personal relationship within the Godhead, within God himself. Well, why does that matter? Well... I think we'll find out before we're through, at least partially. But there's this mysterious consultation where God says, let us. And then he also uses this language in verse 26: let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So the creation of man is not near not merely different from the rest, although indeed Adam and Eve were different. But he Adam and Eve were truly like their creator. There's a uniqueness to this. The image and likeness, those words are essentially synonyms. There may be some difference, but they're used as synonyms. Look again, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then you go down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. And then turn over to chapter 5 and look at verse 1 for just a moment. In Genesis 5, 1, you see the word likeness used. Adam, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then go over to chapter 9, after the flood, where God gives a new covenant to Noah and his family, And we'll circle back to this text before we're through again. But look in chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. So you have likeness, you have image. They are essentially synonyms. But what does it mean to be in the likeness and image of God? An image is essentially a carved representation. In fact, this is ironic. Later on in the Old Testament, it's used for an idol. It's an exact carved representation. I tried to think of how we would relate to it. It's like a hologram. It's like this is God, as it were. You want to know what God looks like, although the problem is God is spirit, but God says man and woman, they are created in my image and also in my likeness. And The word likeness in Hebrew just means likeness. How's that for profound, right? Just, this is the representation. There's a similarity here. But what this means, at the very least, be careful about this. What this means is that the image and the likeness of God gives meaning and significance to every human who has ever lived. Every single person. Every person that walks. Every person that breathes breath. Every person ever conceived is radically distinct from the animal world. Oh yes, you can find all kinds of similarities, without any doubt. But the fact that in a unique way, men and women are made in the image of God means that there is a dignity and there is an importance to every single human existence. And it's important that you recognize this is the basis for all of our concern about life. The pro-life position and our concern and our heartbreak over abortion in our society because life is treated with such, such a cavalier attitude, as though abortion is health care. Whereas in reality, if you take a, a biblical view, which helps explain the instinctive recognition we all have of the meaning of life and the significance of life, we find that the, that life is made in God's image. That's the reason. Is it any wonder that all of this in our culture, in history, was informed by Western tradition, which was informed by Scripture, and now we've lost that. We've lost the ability in our culture at large to speak about eternal truths, to speak out spiritual truths, because we've given over our culture to a raw materialism. Is it any wonder that we don't have a high view of the meaning of life? We are made in the image and likeness of God. The great author C.S. Lewis said it this way, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. Because mere mortality, apart from being made in God's image, doesn't exist. This is the great mystery. And so from conception to natural death, we say it this way, from the womb to the tomb, We believe that life has meaning. Human life has significance. Because every human life, even human life that is deformed, even human life that begins in tragedy or or some kind of sin, every single human life bears the image of God, is made in the likeness of God. The image of likeness of God. Now, the image and likeness of God is difficult to define. If you doubt that, I'll show you my commentaries. Everybody struggles to define it. But it's fairly easy to describe because that's what the text does for us: what it looks like and how it shows up. And so that's our third point this morning. And that is our unique design. So we have God's creativity and God's consultation among Himself and the mystery of the Trinity. But then we have a revelation here about the unique way that we're designed, our unique design. And so look again at verse 27, because that's what we find. And verse 27 represents what we sometimes find throughout the book of Genesis. We're going to see it. It's where Moses, he stops, and without drawing attention to himself, he, it's as though he says, let me give you a helpful summary. Let me just remind you of what's happening here. And in verse 27, so God created... Man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By the way, note God is still drawing distinctions from last week. God is still separating man and woman. He, he had done the same thing in the animal kingdom with gender. God still draws distinctions. But here, the word man is used in Hebrew, adam. And adam sounds similar to what? Adam. The word is used in three ways. It talks about Adam himself. It also talks about men as opposed to women, But it also is commonly used for all mankind. But what this text tells us is that God created mankind in his own image in order to reflect his unique glory, the image and likeness of God. So God is put on display in his form and in his function. He represents, he resembles in a different way from the animals. And so you have in man, you have reason in a way that no animal manifests. You have morality in a way that is not present in the animal world. You have language in a way, in a unique way, that is not present in the animal world. You have relationships, you have creativity, you have self-reflection. You have all of these which, in some way or another, they are demonstrating that men are not animals, that women are not animals. There is a distinction in the image and likeness of God. And we understand that distinction as we're going to see to be a reflection of the glory of God, and that is particularly put on display in relationship, because He doesn't have to say at the end of verse twenty-seven He made them male and female, but He did. He does, because in making Adam and Eve male and female, again, gender, sex existed in the animal world, but in making Adam and Eve male and female, what God is emphasizing is that there is a sense of relationship in the creation of man. And we're going to see this more in the next few weeks where it says it's not good for the man to be alone. This is unpacking that mystery that we find in chapter 2 as Moses goes back and revisits this account. What's the point? The point is this. As God creates Adam and Eve to reflect his glory, it was not sufficient... For Adam to be alone. Because within God, and here's another hint of the Trinity, within God there is eternal community. There is eternal relationship. There is, what does the New Testament tell us in 1 John? God is love. There is within the existence of God eternally, there is love. Do not ever, ever say that God created because he was lonely. God was fully sufficient within himself. And within the relationship, the mysterious relationship between God the Father and God the Word and God the Spirit, there was an eternal love that was eternally sufficient for the God of the universe. And yet, when he created Adam and Eve in his image, how would that image be reflected? It would be reflected partially in marriage, that's where it's highlighted. But not marriage alone. It would be reflected in relationship. And just the point of marriage is that that tends to be the clearest expression of that kind of relationship. But there is a difference and yet there is a union together. There's so much here. But that relationship, that community, reflects in some way the intra-Trinitarian relationships of the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And this is the image of God in man and woman. But that leads us to consider the fact that sexuality is not a biological accident. It's not a necessary evil for material existence. Rather, it is a gift from God. And therefore, there are errors that we have to be aware of. And the farther we've moved away from this account as being authoritative the more easy we have made it to adopt these errors. For example, we cannot dismiss sexual distinctions and gender distinctions as meaningless. According to this, they are fundamental, not incidental. Secondly, we cannot diminish sexual relationships as evil in and of themselves. As I used to teach my teenagers in student ministry years ago, sex was God's idea, and it's a good thing. But also, and how pertinent this is for today, we must not distort these in confusion. We must not assume the prerogative of God who made man and woman as they are, created gender as it is, And for us to assume the authority that we can switch places with those puts us where? It puts us in the position of the creator. And that's what we're going to find when we land in chapter 2. That's the temptation that's held out for Eve and Adam to become as God. We can't diminish sexuality as meaningless. We can't excuse me dismiss it as meaningless. We can't diminish it as evil, but we also must not distort it in confusion. We are uniquely designed. And we're uniquely designed for a purpose. Look at verse 28. Because here you have, after our unique design, you have our singular singular duty, our singular duty. In verse 28, this is delegated sovereignty. God gives Adam and Eve a job to do. Again, more of this in chapter 2, so we'll just address it this morning. Verse 28, God blessed them, mankind, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's one realm. That's the family realm. And then the broader realm, everything else basically, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were not created just to exist. They were not created and put in a display, and God said, look, see my creation. Adam and Eve were given tasks to do, were given a commission, they were given a mandate, they had a duty. They were to live in such a way and function in such a way that they reflected God's glory, that they put his glory on display, they reflected something greater. And in their fruitfulness, they were to multiply. And you could even argue that in some veiled sense, in some inadequate sense, that they were, in a sense, replicating the creation of God. For as God made the earth, then Adam and Eve had the privilege of producing children and filling the earth and multiplying. But they also have the responsibility to subdue the earth. The word is a pretty stunning word. To subdue the earth is to bring it under control for one's advantage. That's what subjection is talking about here, the the idea of subduing the earth. And what do we learn from that? Listen carefully. We are not for the earth. Rather, creation is for us. And it's to be used appropriately. The original dominion mandate implies a responsibility of faithful stewardship. And even given the fall, it's pretty astonishing how much dominion we still manage to have, isn't it? No. In Genesis chapter 9, we already read part of this, but look at it again. In Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Here's the basis for that. For God made man in his own image. And you, this is after the flood, you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. It's fascinating that we don't have subdue and have dominion. Why not? because by that time the earth was out of control, quote unquote. It was under the curse. We are limited to how we are able to subdue the earth, but we do a pretty astonishing job, don't we? None of us were flooded away last night with the rains. And though often we see this, it's a reminder for us, it's by God's grace a reminder. The earth appears out of control underneath the curse, but it's still astonishing that Mankind, in the reflection of God's image and glory, is able to still have dominion in the way that he does. This is our singular duty. And what do we mean by that? We mean it's our duty to reflect our creator, to reflect his glory. Now let me move, it'll take some time, but let me move to a conclusion here. In the last text that we read, at the end of... Genesis 1 Remember we read this and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good Fruitfulness and dominion and God's image all good God's reflected glory on display very good And so you would be in exactly the right place to ask the question What happened Where is it now? Where is that dominion? Where is God's glory? Where is the the creation mandate? Where is the fact that everything is very good because you look around, you look in the mirror when you get up in the morning, you look at the medical tests that the doctor gives you, you look at the heartache that sometimes is represented in our family gatherings, You look at the tension between your neighbors, you look at the world in which we live, you look at the bloodshed in other parts of the world, and you look around and you say, it doesn't look very good. What happened? And in fact, if we're honest, all of these things that we're talking about, they are essentially rebels using God's tainted image to sin and exalt themselves. What what are the tools that we use in our rebellion? The tools we use are the ones that God gave us in his grace. The fallen distortion of the world. We use God's image to pursue that distortion. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, we already mentioned creation care. We're to care for creation, and yet what happens? We use power to abuse and exploit creation in the environment. What about God's image of rationality that we're able to think? How do men and women use rationality? They use rationality to concoct philosophies that argue against the existence of God. The very gift of rationality that God gave, they use to create systems against God. What about sexual pleasure? It's God's idea is to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage. But what happens, that gift that God gives It is used, and it's the gift for community and for the expression of relationship. It's used outside the bounds of marriage for all kinds of sin and hedonism. For the sake of pleasure alone and nothing else. And even the differences between men and women, the God-ordained differences between men and women, are often leveraged for the sake of abuse, as often men abuse women. This tension, this question is a philosophical one. Why are things the way they are? But it's also an existential one. It's a personal one. For some of us, we face it daily. Where is the good world that God created? Where is his good intention? Why are things the way they are? You know, when you ask good questions, you almost inevitably find that the questions have been asked before. The writer of Hebrews addresses this issue. Based on what we know as Psalm 8. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says? Quoting Psalm 8 What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, again, we object. It doesn't look that way. We remember five years ago the mud flow. How were things in subjection under his feet in the mud flow? How are things in subjection under his feet in the terrorist attacks for the last several months? How are things under subjection? In sub- submission to him? You, you, you have left nothing outside his control, and in our hearts and minds we object. But that's not the end. Because what we find As we move forward, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The poet said, everything is red in tooth and claw. But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And when we cry out, where is the good? It doesn't look very good right now in my my body. It doesn't look very good right now in my family. It doesn't look very good right now in our society. Where is the good? And the writer of Hebrews says, Yeah, everything's not yet in in subjection. But we do see Jesus. We see Jesus. We know who Jesus was. We know who Jesus is. We know what Jesus has done. We know what Jesus will do. And therefore, there is hope. This is what we call the gospel. It gives meaning to all of life. It gives meaning to us in the midst of our not very goodness because we can find forgiveness and a place to belong because of what God does for us through his son, Jesus Christ. When you repent of your sins, and when you put your hope and faith in him, not just when you do good works, not just when you show up at church from time to time, not just when you say, I'm going to be the best neighbor I can, and maybe God will be satisfied with me. You have a sin problem, a guilt problem, that needs to be dealt with through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You need to repent and believe. And when you do, something glorious happens. You find a new ability to reflect the glory of God. Now, we have to be careful in our language as I'm wrapping up. Because there's this glory talk. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 42.8, the Bible says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So God doesn't give his glory. He doesn't share his glory. But here's what God does. He channels his glory. And he chooses to channel his glory. Here's the majesty of his grace. He chooses to channel his glory through rebels who went their own way until his grace redeemed them. And that's how God's glory is made that much more glorious. There's no one on the face of the earth that's a perfect person, but I suppose if there were, that perfect person would say, see, it's not so much God's glory because I was perfect and I'm reflecting the glory of God, but it doesn't work that way because everyone is a sinner. But eternally, we will be reflectors of the glory of God where in eternity future, God will look and display his glory by pointing to people like you and me and saying, Look at how much I loved. Look at how much I cared. These rebels I rescued by my grace. And therefore, we find in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, who are the called? Well, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's his glory. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, so there's the category, the called, the ones predestined were called, and those that he called he justified, and those that he justified he also, what's the word? Glorified. And it's not our own glory. It's the glory of our Savior. So do you see what we're saying? You and I have the privilege, like Adam and Eve, we have the privilege of making God look good. Of God putting his glory on display through rebels like us. Adam and Eve, before the fall, that was what they were called and commissioned to do. And we know, as we'll see in the next few weeks, They failed so miserably at that. But God didn't quit. God didn't give up. In fact, in the mystery of God's omniscience, he knew exactly what he was doing and exactly what would happen, and he was pleased to allow it to happen in order that people like you and me, rebels born after our first parents, rebels would be forgiven by his grace and display his glory to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that is the unique image and likeness of God. Let me give you two important implications. And to talk them through, I'm going to ask you to turn to the New Testament. Turn to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The first implication from all of this, we've talked about it over and over again, is that there's this twisted image that is part of who we are, a twisted image. We did not lose the image of God in our sin, but it is perverted and twisted. There are all kinds of ways the Bible talks about this. I just want to show you a couple in this context of 2 Corinthians. For example, look with me in chapter 4, look at verse 7. Paul says, For we have this treasure in jars of clay, To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay has to do with this weakness. We are still in God's image, but the image is now tainted. One author says, We are a a grisly shadow of ourselves. How's that? We're a grisly shadow of what we ought to be, but we still bear the mark of the Creator. We still have the image of God, it's now tainted and twisted with sinfulness. So, in a sense, that glory is now lost. It was never our glory to begin with, but it was the privilege of representing God, of being a carved image of God. And sin has, has ruined all of that, has, has tainted all of it. There's this twisted image, but that's not all. Because the other implication is that even though we all have this twisted image that's part of our sinfulness, we also find that there's a restored glory. There's a restored glory. And again, it's God's glory. But as we repent and believe, God will not be frustrated in displaying his goodness. We read about that over in chapter 3. It's a, it's a complex text, and I'm not going to be able to explain it by any means. But look at the end of chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 16. You see what the word says there? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory, degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So God delights in taking people with a twisted image of himself and forgiveness and redeeming us and crafting us into the likeness of His Son Romans eight we read that and in doing so we have greater and greater opportunity to reflect His glory even though the image is still tainted it, it, it's not full it's not the kind of kind of wonder that remember when Jesus takes the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration and so He opens the veil and they see whoa that's the glory no we're not there yet. Well, one day we will be, amen? And that's the promise. There's a restored glory in all of this. And that's the reason, if you go back into chapter 4, look at this promise. At the end of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, look at verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. We do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You see there's that idea of glory upon glory, greater degree of glory. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, and listen to these words, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because if you look at the things that are seen, nothing's in subjection under his feet yet. It's the way it appears. But the author of Hebrews says, we look to Jesus. We see Jesus. And through Jesus, he accomplishes his glory. We look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the image and the likeness of God. And for those who are forgiven and redeemed, we have the privilege, we have the duty, we are designed for this purpose. In imperfect ways, in stumbling ways, we're not there yet, but we have the opportunity day by day to live in faithfulness. And when we do, We put on display the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy, the love of the Creator God. And I want to ask you, where else in the world will people find it? Where will they see it? Where can they experience it? If not in the people of God who recognize the implications of the image of God within them that's twisted and perverted and yet nevertheless has been redeemed and therefore they have the opportunity to experience the restored glory, reflected glory of their creator. And that's the reason to keep going. That's the reason to grow. That's the reason to be faithful. That's the reason to say no to temptation. That's the reason, young people, to struggle with philosophies and and all kinds of worldly systems and try to ground yourself in a biblical worldview. That's the reason to love your neighbors. That's the reason to engage in the body of Christ where his glory is put on display. Because otherwise, all people will see is the brokenness around them. And God is eager for them to see that which is Very good. Very good. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us see the wonder of your kindness to us in the gospel? Would you help us see our duty? Would you help us remember this incredible design that You have built into all people and then the power and equipping and enabling that comes when you forgive us and redeem us through Jesus Christ. What a mystery it is, what a glory it is to be able to say that we have some role in reflecting your great glory. Help us see that this is a mission in life. Help us see it as a great blessing from your hand, and may it drive us to faithfulness and holiness this week as we live out our one-of-a-kind calling, made and forgiven in the image and likeness of God. In your glorious name we pray, in the name of your Son, amen.